Welcome to the Vying for Victory podcast, where we believe God heals people in a way that brings Him the most glory and brings us closest to Him. Whether you've received healing, you're in the fight of your life, or you gave up on God a long time ago, you are welcome here. As you come to the table, listen with an open mind, knowing everyone's journey is unique, but pain is our common language. Let's vie for victory, friends. Hello, welcome to the Vying for Victory podcast. My name is Tara Brown. I'm denying I am your host. Today, we have a story that is so near and dear to my heart. This is one of the stories that got me passionate about sharing stories of healing in the first place, and I don't think I can listen to it without crying every time I do. I don't even think I talk most of the interview because this woman is just such a powerhouse through the Lord that she can just bring down the house all on her own. So get ready for some amens and some hallelujahs as you listen to Irma Cantu. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your story, who you are, you have kids, where do you live, all of those things. Okay, well, I'm Irma Cantu. I'm a child of God, most importantly. Uh, I got saved at the age of 25, and God did a wonderful work in my life, as he has done with everyone else who's ever accepted him in their hearts. I was bound by the spirit of fear. I was afraid of many things and little of everything, fear of fear itself. And I really had a, a great, I guess, deliverance. The Lord started showing me scriptures about love because perfect love casts out fear. And I started to learn how to pray and how to enter his presence and, and get deliverance from that. And about five or six years after I got saved, I met my husband. We are now divorced, but at the time it was he was my husband. And in the process of getting married, I went to have a wellness exam. And my doctor told me that I would never be able to have kids without medical intervention. So I had to really sit down and think, is this person going to want to marry me knowing that he may never have children with me if that's his goal to have kids. So we had a long, hard talk and he was okay with the idea of not having kids. But I just said, I believe that when God wants me to have children, I will. So uh, we got married and went to the doctor and he's like, you know, you're, you can't have children without medical intervention. You're just going to have to start taking medicines. And I told him, you know, I know that you have a lot of medical experience and I'm not trying to negate the fact that you are very experienced. You've been a doctor a very long time, but I serve a mighty God. And when he says it's time for me to have children, I am going to have kids. And he got real nervous and he was like, no, 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 it's true. It's true. You know, you, you have to live with hope. You have to live with hope. You, you, you can't, you know, let it go. So lo and behold, sure enough, I got pregnant with my son. No medical intervention whatsoever. No medicines, nothing. Just God's grace did it. And had him, he's, perfectly fine. He is now about to be 19. And two and a half years later, got pregnant again, no medical intervention whatsoever, just by the grace of God. And so both of my babies were miracle babies. And as you have come to know, Tara, my second baby was a female, her name was Mia. And she ended up having special needs. And that was, that's what has brought me here to talk to you about the, the miracles that God did in my life. And the grace, the abundant grace that was bestowed upon us in our our lives as we learn to live with a child with special needs. Yeah, I uh, met you three years ago, I think now, and 
just such a cool God divine appointment. And your story has stuck with me all this time. And so I'm so excited to share it with more people. So tell us a little bit about Mia and how that started. You know, what were some first signs and through the, the diagnosis process and all of that? She was born and about a month after she was born, she caught a cold and the cold lasted about 15 to 18 days and and we found it kind of strange because the doctor said oh she'll get over it in a week you know babies get past this really quickly and my ex-husband is an rn a nurse registered nurse so he was like you know babies don't normally have a cold that lasts this long but you know she is a newborn and they don't have an immune system really built up so maybe that's what it is and then some time passed and we took her for her three-month checkup and told, I told the doctor, oh my gosh, she hit her milestone. She rolled over at two and a half months and the doctor was pleased because it was early and she said, okay, we'll just, you know, keep doing her checkups. So at four months, my sister came to visit me and she carried her. My sister had a, a child, had two kids already. So, you know, she had experience carrying kids and whatnot. And when she held my daughter, she picked her up like this, like to bounce her legs. And she said, she feels funny. She feels squishy. I said, squishy? And she said, yeah, like her muscles feel weird. I said, well, I haven't noticed. Um, I mean, I have Benjamin and I have her, so I don't I don't know. She said, well, I'm probably just imagining things. I said, well, when we go see the doctor, we'll go find out. And she wasn't really holding herself up. And my ex-husband had a cousin who had special needs, a type of muscular dystrophy called spinal muscular atrophy. And one of his cousins saw us at a wedding and she said, something's wrong with their daughter and told my mother-in-law, said something's wrong with the little girl because she's she's not even sitting up and she should be. So of course, you know, I was praying and praying against the negativity and, you know, I didn't want those kinds of things spoken over my daughter. And so I just prayed and I said, God, you have to lead and guide because I don't know why people can be mean, but, you know, we'll take her to the doctor. So we found a really good pediatrician. And the minute she felt the baby's arms, Mia's arms, she said, mm, something's not right. We need to to find out what's going on. And the doctor suspected that she had a, the same type of muscular dystrophy that my ex-husband's cousin had. So she called a neurologist and they said we couldn't get an appointment for nine months. And I I was like, nope, I'm, I can't wait that long. If she does have this disability, she said, well, if she has a disability, she's not going to survive past the age of two. Most babies die before they're two years old. I said, so in other words, you're saying I would probably lose her before she even gets seen at the doctor's office. And she says, well, I mean, I, I don't know for sure. We need to test her to see what she has. So she called a different neurologist at Texas Children's Hospital in Houston and I guess she explained what she really thought was wrong with her. So they got her in six weeks later. It was, it, the disease has been around for a little while, but the technology in diagnosing the disease was still very new. So the neurologist said, oh, we need to do a muscle biopsy. And what we're gonna do is cut a three inch hole in her upper thigh well, her leg was maybe four inches long, her thigh. So, so we have to put her under, you know, general anesthesia, do a three-inch uh, incision, do a muscle biopsy, send it off, and it'll take a long time to get the results. And 
I said, no, this is my daughter. You have to figure out a different way to do it because she is a baby. She is three months old and I will not allow you to cut her open like that three inch incision on her leg. No. So he's like, well, you know, that's all we can do right now. And I said, well, then you're going to have to figure it out with your medical knowledge without cutting her open. So he said, you know, let me let me check and see what else we can do. So he must have Googled something and found a blood test that was a thousand dollars. And he was like, oh, my God, it's a thousand dollars. And I don't think your insurance is going to cover it. And I said, well, if that's all we have to do is a blood test, then let's get it done and we'll figure it out. So, of course, I was a wreck because he said, I'm pretty sure she has spinal muscular atrophy. It's a rare thing. You and your husband both have to carry the gene in order for her, her to get it. And then the chances are only 25% that she would have gotten it, but she was the 25% in this case. So she does probably have it. So it took nine weeks before we got the results. And I cried and I cried in the waiting process, just waiting and praying. And uh, when the results came in, I remember vividly, I was at work. I, I was working as a dental hygienist and my husband came in during my lunch hour and he said, we need to talk. And I already knew when he said that I already knew. And I broke down, I was a mess, uh, a total mess. And the doctor came in, it was a female doctor. She came in and she just looked at me and I just, hugged her. I needed a hug. I didn't care who it was from. It, I just needed human touch at that specific time. And she says, well, you never know, you know, it, things can work out. And, and I was, I was a wreck. So everybody knew just by my reaction to the news. And I think I cried for a week and a half nonstop after that, after I heard the news and my ex-husband finally just said, you know, she's still the same little girl that we have always known just because we heard some words that are going to change our lives doesn't mean that she has already changed. She's had this the whole time. We just need to learn to live our lives with the news that we got. So I just realized that our normal was going to be different from everybody else's normal. But as I prayed about it and really sought the Lord as to how are we going to handle this? What are we going to do with this information, this news about my perfect little girl? You know, in my eyes, she was perfect. I realized that there is no such thing as normal. Everybody develops what is normal for their specific family. But if I take my eyes off of the Lord and look at other people, I'm always going to fall short we're always going to fall short of God's grace, no matter what. And that's why he says, keep your eyes on me. So I said, okay, show me what our no normal is. What is normal for Mia? What is normal for us as a family with my other son, you know, my son, Benjamin. And that was a long, hard road. It was a lot of tears, a lot of tears. And she was just such a happy little girl. It was, it was nice to spend all my time with her. But then we got the diagnosis that she would probably not survive past the age of two. And at this time, by the time everything was said and done, she was already 18 months old. So I kept telling the doctor, you mean to tell me she's probably going to die within a year? We won't have her past a year? And he's like, I'm so sorry, Ms. Garza, that's, that's probably what's going to happen because she's not as advanced as strong as some of the other kids and you know there's different levels of spinal muscular atrophy and 
had to really search my heart and see what I really believe. Do I, do I believe in the Lord to heal her? Do I believe what God's word says? Am I able to stand firm on his promises, you know, that are yes and amen. And do I believe on the, the work that was done on the cross? He died on the cross so that we are healed. The word of God says we are healed. So I had to start praying the word over her and start believing. And, and even at 18 months of age, she couldn't obviously talk a lot. And because the spinal muscular atrophy really affected her, her uh, enunciations weren't great. So I would pray with her every night, you know, I'd put her in her crib and I'd pray with her and, and I would always finish my prayers with in Jesus name. And I would say, amen. And she would say, I, yeah, that was her. Amen. I knew that that was her. I, yeah, she was, she was finishing her prayer and she knew to pray. I would take her to church and I had to carry her cause she couldn't walk. She couldn't pick up a pencil. It was too heavy for her to lift. And so everyone would love on her and, the battle began and and it was a battle of wills a battle of trust a battle of believing god for his favor trusting that god really had our best interest at heart and hers of course and then you know the doubts as to how could god allow something like this to happen to a little girl you know she's a baby and and of course the enemy comes and whispers in your ear and the thought process and just a constant battle So then take us through, what did her daily care look like? You know, you switched, alternated when your husband was home, when you were home. I know you slept at her bed. And, you know, what did that look like just taking care of a child um, with this need? I decided I would stay home with her because I wasn't going to let anyone else take care of her. We took her out of daycare. I stayed home with her five days a week. So my ex-husband worked the five days and then I went to work as a hygienist for two days a week and he was home with her for the two days. Her swallow reflex stopped working so we had to do some kind of test for that and they found out that it really wasn't working so she aspirated and ended up septic and so they had to put do a surgery to put a a g-button on her tummy and we had to feed her through a, a little tube in her stomach. So every night we had to run the feed for several hours we would connect her and she couldn't roll over or anything so we weren't concerned about her strangling or anything like that so the food would run for a few hours and then the machine would beep so i'd wake up and turn it off disconnect her make sure that the lines were clean and that she was okay because her lung her lungs didn't collapse but her chest cavity did it kind of like caved in she had a real deep sternum because of the mus- muscular atrophy, she would use her stomach muscles to breathe. So her stomach would go up and down quite a bit. Well, that's exerted a lot of energy. So she would perspire all night long. So when she would wake up in the morning, her entire pillow would be wet, except for the little corners of her pillow, just from trying to survive and just breathing. Mm-hmm. So she would create a lot of mucus, which would settle in her in her throat because she was asleep so I would wake up probably three times a night to suction the mucus out so that she could keep breathing as time went on she had a harder time breathing I couldn't drive anywhere with her in our handicapped van so we went to see the specialist and they gave us a a machine to suction all of that out and every time we drove you know the, the cars vibrate well the vibrations would loosen up a lot of that so there was a few trips that we took that 
all the driving, you know, an hour drive was enough to loosen up all the mucus secretions that she had. So I had to pull over. She would be turning blue. I had to suction her out. And then and the she really couldn't throw up because of the little G button. And if she did throw up, it was very dangerous since her throat didn't work. It could settle in her lungs. So one of the times she threw up, I was so worried because I knew if she threw up, that means she probably caught an infection. She's going to be in the hospital. Every time she got hospitalized, she was in the hospital two weeks minimum to two and a half weeks. And she would get released and she would be home for two weeks. Then we would be back in the hospital for two weeks. So it was back and forth, back and forth. We went to church uh, shortly after the incident and there was somebody visiting our church preaching and I remember he spoke to us and said that God gave us abundant grace for a situation that had already happened, which was the time that she threw up. She did not get sick that one time. God really poured out his abundant grace and protected her from being in the hospital. So it was it was difficult. Yeah. And so also, I know you were praying over her this entire time. And so take me through your your faith and your proclamations, declarations over her and also tell us the ballet shoes, um, what you did with that. And then, but yeah, tell us how you prayed over her being her mom. I've always, I mean, since I got saved, I knew that I was called to prayer, to be a prayer warrior. So I would pray about everything. And I, I'm one to believe God for the big things. Um, I guess you can call it a gift of faith. I don't know. I just, I don't tend to to doubt wholeheartedly that, oh, God can't do that. I, I just believe he can. His word says he can. I'm going to stand on his word. Let's move forward with that. So I started praying for her. And when we were in the process of finding out if she had the disability, I remember I called my mom at six in the morning. Mom, she's, you know, M Mia, the doctor says she might have a disability. And my mom was very encouraging. She wasn't in the Lord. like She was in a different denomination that doesn't believe, I guess, not that, I mean, they believe in Jesus, God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, but she didn't believe like I believed. So um, I talked to the pastor and I said, look, if somebody cannot give me an encouraging word and, and believe like I believe that God is able to heal her, then I don't want to talk to them. And I, I don't, at this point, I'm upset. I'm angry with the possibility of what could be I'm going to stand on God's word and I don't need anyone coming to tell me otherwise. So I called my mom. I said, I, if you cannot tell me that you believe what I'm believing, please don't say anything negative against her because right now I'm, I'm upset and I'm angry and I need, I need to know that what I'm standing on is something that people can support me. I need to surround myself with the support and the faith and the belief that God is who he says he is and he can do what his word says he can do. So the pastor prayed for me and my mom's like, of course, Jesus can heal. He still does. We're going to believe that God is going to do what what you what you're praying. So the the church was praying and praying and of course the we got the diagnosis and it started the process. Everybody became the church family literally became my family. I had moved to Houston, the Houston area, and I didn't have any family. I had an aunt, but she was in her 80s, and she was a great help. We ended up, by the grace of God, moving a mile away from her, which I didn't know at the time when I bought my house that she lived a mile away from us. 
but I got really close to her, loved her dearly, and she would come and help every chance I had, and she loved Mia. She would just talk to her and kind of read to her stories that she knew in her memory, and, and Mia loved my aunt. She would make faces and try to talk to her as much as she could, and she would be silly and so as we prayed, the pastor would come up with different prayers that he felt that God had given him to pray over Mia. One year, it was to pray for favor. We needed to pray for God's favor upon Mia. So he had typed out this prayer for her. And I still have it saved. I would pray it over her every single night. And some nights I wept and wept because I started to have doubts. You know, you start to look at the situation and it's hard to continue to believe that God is going to do what he says he's going to do when you see a child deteriorating. And I would cry and I refuse to believe what I see. I call the things that are not as though they were according to God's word. And I knew that her muscles were weak. I knew she would, they said she would never be able to walk. So one of the days we drove somewhere far from our house and took her and they had ballet shoes there. So I bought some ballet shoes and I, I wasn't, ballet when I was a little girl, you know, from the age of eight or nine up till I was about 13. So I knew what toe shoes were. I knew the strength involved in using toe shoes as opposed to the regular little ballet slipper flats. So I asked for toe shoes and the store didn't have any. So I said, well, I'll just buy regular ballet shoes at this point. So every night, and the ballet shoes were huge on her. They were like two sizes too big. And, you know, her toes almost stuck out of the, the little elastic. But that, the purpose was that I was going to pray over her prophetically and believe that one day she was going to have the strength to stand and walk and dance before Jesus or before me, which was really what I wanted. But, you know, I would pray. So every night, I told my husband, every night I'm going to put these shoes on her and I'm going to pray for her and we're going to pray that she's going to have the strength to stand one day. God is going to heal her. So I put the little shoes on her. And the first night I put them on, I told her, as of this day, this moment, you shall be called healed of God. And she would just, she couldn't nod her head up and down because her head was too heavy and she was real weak. But she could do her eyebrows up and down. And she would move them very quickly. I, I can't do that. But she could move them up and down very quickly. So she was not nodding yes with her eyebrows. I said, so healed of God. You're going to hear me call you healed of God as time goes on. And she would say, okay. And so I would pray every night. And I would pray that God would heal her. And she could hear me say my prayers, obviously. And she'd say, yeah, when I would finish. So I guess as time went on, um, she got worse. She got more and more sick. And when she went to be with Jesus, I think it was about six months later, uh, one of my girlfriends from church uh, told me that she saw me at church. We would go to church Sunday morning, night, and then Wednesdays. This was a Wednesday night. She said, I really need to talk to you about something. So I told her, okay, well, after the service, look for me and, and we can you can tell me what, what you need to say. So the, the church finished and I didn't see her. She didn't find me. So I went and looked for her and I said, okay, what? what do you need to tell me? She says, no, I don't want to tell you because you'll probably start crying. And so I just told her tears are part of the healing process. I said, and I've shed plenty of tears, plenty. Everybody in the church family has seen me cry. I am not ashamed of my tears. Everybody knows why I have tears and I'm okay with that. Tell me the story. So she was like, okay, okay. So we went and sat down and 
She said, I had a, dr a dream about Mia recently. And I said, okay. I said, what was it about? Uh, she said she was wearing ballet shoes and a tutu. And she said to tell you that she is dancing before Jesus now. And she wants you to know that she can dance. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Thank you, Jesus. I said, you have no idea how that is such a revelation and such an answer to my prayers. Because for years I had prayed that until she passed. And we hadn't told anyone, my husband or I didn't tell anybody that we were praying over her with ballet shoes and, and using that as a prophetic act to believe God for his miracle. So she, I knew she didn't know about it. So when God showed her that, I knew that it was God bringing everything full circle and fulfilling the, the promise, even though it didn't happen on earth, it did happen in heaven, and my prayers really were answered. Sometimes prayers are answered differently from what we would expect or what we would want. It happens in the natural, or it can happen in the heavenlies. In this case, it happened in the heavenlies. So it just gave me such a sense of peace. God really is real. God is alive, just like me and you are alive. And he is able to touch and hear everything that we say, everything that we do. He is able to reach us at our lowest point in life and meet us at that point and prove to us that what we prayed months and months and months ago, here it is. Here's your answer. This is what you asked for. This is your specific prayer. Here it is. Here's your answer. So I, I'm thankful. I give God the glory for that. Amen. I just, every time I tear up a little bit when I hear it and I have goosebumps because it's, those are the stories where you're, I, you can't not believe that God is real. I mean, that, that is supernatural in every sense of the word and, and just seeing that healing, it's just beyond what we would define as healing. So thank you for sharing. And just, if you would just backing up a little bit. So now we know that she did pass away, but I would also say, you know, you had, this faith that would move mountains. I mean, you really did through this whole thing. And so take us through kind of her final days in the hospital. I know you told me about how, um, you know, you said you wouldn't intubate her and, and things, and then you did and, and releasing her to the Lord. Will you share that with us? My husband and I, because he is in the medical field, he always tried to prepare me in advance for what was expected or what could possibly happen because of her disability. And as things would shut down, she wasn't going to be able to do certain things. And of course, she didn't reach a lot of the milestones. And I think what people don't realize that when you have a child with special needs is, first of all, no one prays to have a child with special needs. Every time someone's pregnant, you know, like, oh, what do you want? Oh, it doesn't matter as long as it's healthy, as long as it has 10 fingers and 10 toes. It's like, well, of course, no one's going to pray for a child with special needs. But what happens if it does have special needs? Well, mine did. You know, you expect it to happen to everybody else. But when it happens to you, it's very different. I realized that there's a purpose to everything, including having a child with special needs. In the big scheme of things, I realized that part of the reason that God allowed this to happen is to change my perspective about special needs. Now, I feel like it has it has turned around, come full circle, and it's such a blessing because now I work with 
students who have special needs, not the same type that Mia had, but uh, I work with visually impaired stu or students with visual impairments. Would I have done that had I not lived with special needs? Probably not. I just feel that it has given me a greater sense of what parents are going through because I actually lived it. It has given me a whole different kind of compassion and patience to be able to, to work with these students because some of them have intellectual disabilities, they're delayed, they have multiple disabilities. Most of them aren't what we call quote unquote just blind. They have other things that have caused them to lose their sight as well as handicaps. But we had agreed that we would not intubate her, that if she ever stopped breathing, that we were going to just let her be with Jesus or Jesus would heal her because God could do one or the other. Well, I really didn't know what intubation was, even though I'm a dental hygienist, that's not my field. I'm in dental, not medical. So it happened on my watch. We were home and it was the Saturday right before Easter Sunday. So Easter was going to be the next day. And my brother was visiting and my sister-in-law. And where Mia's room was, it was catty corner from the kitchen. I could cook, be facing the stove, and right behind me, I could turn and see where she was at. We had her medical bed there, so I could always be doing what I needed to do and still be able to take care of her. And that specific morning, it was Saturday morning, um, I was making breakfast for my guests, and my sister-in-law walks in the kitchen. She said, oh, Mia fell back to sleep. And I said, no, Mia does not ever go back to sleep. When she wakes up in the morning, she's up all day till her afternoon nap. She's like, no, Mia's asleep. And my heart fell. I turned and I looked and her stomach wasn't going up and down. I knew she was not breathing because it was a given from far away. You could just see her, her stomach go up and down. That's how she breathed. So I dropped my spoon. I, my brother was sitting in the kitchen. I said, take care of that. I got to go take care of Mia. She's not breathing. So I went in there and I look at her and she's not moving. Her eyes are closed. It's like she's asleep, but she's not breathing. And I said, Mia, wake up, sweetie. Sweetie, you got to wake up. Come on, you got to start breathing. And of course she didn't. So I started CPR, but the even though it was a medical bed, it was still too soft and limp and her body was real limp. So I started doing the chest compressions uh, nothing was happening. So I said, okay, my training has taught me I, I, I need to move her head back, you know, clear the airways. And because she does have a lot of mucus, I knew that she could have a lot in her airway. So I, nothing was happening. The air wasn't moving. I couldn't get her pulse. I feel for her pulse, her carotid pulse. I don't feel it. So I grab her little limp body and put her on the floor. You know, I just kind of push the medical bed out of the way and I'm, you know, tilt her head back and I'm doing the, the chest compressions counting one and two and three and four. And I said, call 911. We need an ambulance. I said, and then when you finish, call the pastors. I need people praying now. I need intercessory group praying. So she calls the 911 and she doesn't know my address because she doesn't live there. So I'm bawling and I mean, the tears are coming. I have mucus running down my nose, down my face, and I'm trying to, to concentrate. How, how many times have I done chest compressions? I need to do two breaths. At the time it was 30 and then two breaths. And she gives the address and I'm still doing the chest compressions and trying to do the breathing. 
And somewhere in the process of all of that, I remember I'm doing the chest compressions up and down and I look up and I say, Lord Jesus, regardless, and I say it out loud, I, I remember seeing my brother walk into the room and I say, regardless of what happens here and now, if you choose to take my daughter, I will still love you. I will still serve you. I know you can heal her right here and right now. But if you choose not to, I will still serve you. And I keep doing that. And at, at that time, my brother walks out and my little boy comes in. He's six or six and a half. And he's running around. Mom, is everything OK? And I'm trying, you know, please get Benjamin. I, I have to concentrate on what's going on. I'm on the phone with 911, the operator. And I said, I have an oxygenating machine that produces oxygen. I put it on her on her nose so that it can force air into her lungs. And she's like, no, take 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 that off. You have to do CPR. And I'm thinking, why would I have to do CPR if this machine is giving her what I'm supposed to be doing? But I obeyed, you know, and I'm still crying and crying. And a police officer walks in. All I remember seeing is his dress blues, just perfect, like a Marine would be, how you imagine the Marine's outfit, just perfectly starched. He looked very professional. And I'm crying and crying, and snot literally is just rolling down my face, which I'm sure I was a sight. And he says, ma'am, he was very calm, very pulled together. I said, ma'am, would you like me to take over? And I'm like, uh, yes, please, yes. So I go into my bedroom and we have the monitor on because we would sleep with the monitor on and the ambulance people get there and they take out the the thing to do the intubation, which I had no idea what they were doing. He says, okay, man, we can take over. So I go into my room so I could try to pull myself together. The police officer leaves, the ambulance crew takes over and they're trying to get her pulse. She has no pulse. So they said, we have to shock her. And I said, okay. So I walk into my room at the same time that they connect her and they say clear and they shock her and you hear the static on the monitor. And I'm like, oh, my God, my little girl is literally not breathing. My CPR hasn't brought her back. Only God can bring her back. And he has not done so. So they start. They said, nope, she didn't have a heartbeat. Shock her again. I hear the static. I'm still in the, in my room. I hear the static on the monitor. And I'm like, Lord, you have to intervene. You have to intervene. I cannot do anything, nothing. I realized at that point that without him, I was absolutely nothing. I had cared for her. I had loved her. I had danced with her. I had made her feel dizzy so she could experience what being dizzy is like and all the little things that other kids would do and i could not give her life i was not jesus i wanted to give her everything that i could make her life as normal as possible but life isn't something that i can give it, god gives the breath of life and when god chooses to take it he has the right as god to do so so they they call me and they say, okay, we got her pulse. We have a pulse for her. We're gonna go ahead and take her in the ambulance. You can go with us. Well, I needed to find someone to take care of my son. My sister-in-law said, I'll get someone from the church lived a few blocks away. Um, they came over and picked up Benjamin. He knew who they were and he really liked them. 
and I got in the ambulance and it was very surreal to hear the sirens and have the lights going to see the respect that people had for the emergency vehicle. And I'm thinking, that's my daughter in the back. My daughter is dying in the back. She's not breathing. And all these thoughts are going through my head and she is being respected by total and complete strangers trying to get us to the hospital. So I get to the hospital and by that time we had called my husband, he worked 30 minutes away from where we lived in another city, another hospital emergency room. So he sped to where we were to, uh, it was in Clear Lake, I believe, NASA. And he got there and I said, I don't know, like, I, I tried, I, I said, this wasn't supposed to happen on my watch. Not that I wanted it on your watch either, but I'm a hygienist, you know, and he's like, honey, we agreed that we were not gonna allow her to be intubated. I said, I don't even know what that is. I don't, I, they didn't do that. He's like, in order for her to be here in the ER, she was intubated. They have her on a life support system. I was like, oh my God, I had no idea, but God knew and God knew that I needed the time to be with her. So the kangaroo came and uh, crew came and picked her up and we went to Texas Children's and they put her in the NICU unit uh, for a week to try to get her breathing. And that was a whole long process of grieving and crying and knowing that, excuse me, everything that I had prayed would either come to a head and culmination or we were going to say goodbye. That was difficult, trying to walk it out, walk out my faith and praying. I would pray and pray and pray and cry and cry and cry. And I had people all over praying and interceding. And the associate pastor came in to see me and said that, uh, Rick Warren, who wrote A Purpose Driven Life, had, quote unquote, so happened to call the church and asked what the church needed prayer for when she was in the hospital. And he said, so Rick Warren's church is praying for Mia. And we have hundreds, if not thousands of people in a prayer group. People have sent in, you know, they sent it to their friend who sent it to a friend and it, it just went on and on and on of people praying and praying for Mia to, to get healed and trusting with me, believing God with me that God could heal her. So did she get healed? No. I don't believe at all that it was a lack of faith on any of our part. If you remember the story of David when he sinned in uh, with Bathsheba and they had a child and he fasted and prayed for this child, for God to heal him and God didn't heal him. Sometimes the healing comes in heaven. Sometimes the intervention will only happen in heaven. And as I prayed about this podcast and what we were gonna talk about today and what I could say to other people who may be listening to this, I kept saying, God, why would I have gone through this? Why? wouldn't you have healed my daughter when I feel that I believe to the very end? I'll get to that in just a minute. It was uh, three in the morning on a Saturday night, Saturday morning, 
that after they disconnected her and it took a while for her to pass and to go be with Jesus. At three in the morning, I remember my pastor was there, his wife and a, a close circle of our friends, family from church. At three in the morning, my husband said, you know, I really believed Jesus was gonna heal her and he didn't. And I looked at him and I said, you can't stop believing. God still can heal her. She still has life in her body. She is not gone yet. God can heal her. I believe God can heal her. And my pastor was like, yep, God can heal her. It's not over. So at 3.30, 3-something, I laid down with her in bed because I would sleep with her every, almost every night. And at the hospital bed, I sat at the foot of her bed. And, you know, at that hour, I was exhausted. I had been crying for a week and just everything. I laid down on the bed. I fell asleep at 3.37, and she fell asleep at 3.37. And she was in Jesus' presence. At that point, my sister-in-law, who was also a nurse, had driven in with my brother, and she tapped me, and she said, Mia's with Jesus. So I remember looking at Mia just laying there asleep. I mean, she looked asleep, and... I remember saying, okay, Lord, I've trusted you up until this point. I've believed that you have the will, you have the power, you have everything that it takes for her to rise up. If she were to rise up right here and right now, you would return her to me completely healed. She would not have SMA. She would be able to walk. She would be able to pick up a pencil. She could roll over. She could do all of that. And for some reason, you choose not to do that. And I have to accept that as it is right here, right now, God. I release her back unto you, unto your care. You lent her to me for three and a half years, almost four. And I'm thankful for the time that I had with her. Right here and right now, I release her back unto you. Why would God not give her to me i'm sure people will ask lately i have heard a lot of stories of three and four year old kids who have made it to heaven god has shown them you know the array of heaven and they come back and then they have a story to tell and we've seen movies about it and i kept saying okay but i believed why wouldn't god have done that for me well you know what there's a lot of kids who don't make it to heaven and back to earth and I feel that God showed me that I can be a testimony to those who have lost the kids who either didn't know the Lord at the time, or even if they did know the Lord, that God was with me in the darkest times. God was with Mia the second she passed from here to glory. The word of God says that death isn't a final thing. You know, we don't pass from life to death the word of god says we pass from death to life eternal life and i realized at that point in time that my job as mia's mom was complete and our i guess for lack of a better word our job as a parent is to teach our kids about jesus and raise them up in the way that they should go so when they grow up they will not depart from it 
I taught her to believe in Christ and to trust him and to love him. Her favorite song, she would sing a Christian song. She says, I'm desperate for you. That song, I, I'm desperate for you. And she would sing it and, you know, it was off key and whatnot. But at three years old, I'm sure Jesus thought it was the most beautiful sound ever. The fact that she is with Jesus right now, there is hope because I am one who doesn't live without hope. I live with the hope that I will see her one day. She is in heaven. I have proof by a friend who had a dream that she is dancing before the Lord. And every time that the grief would set in and and the complete darkness would come around me and I would bawl and I would cry and I would weep, Jesus would remind me that she's with me. She's alive forevermore. She has reached the final destination, which is heaven. I did all that God required me to do for her. I taught her about him, and she is in his presence dancing before him. Ultimately, that's our goal, to make it to heaven, to be able to see our loved ones again one day. When that is, we don't know. But we will come to see our loved ones again if they trust in Jesus and have him as Lord and Savior. And she is. She's in heaven. It's just incredible. Thank you for your vulnerability and and for sharing. And you answered the questions that I was going to ask you, which, you know, is is what would you say to the people who who haven't remained in their faith because this has happened? And I guess now I'm curious, how long has it been since me went to be with the Lord? And and what does your life look like since then? And have you doubted God? And and what was the aftermath of all of that? She died in April of 2007. So it's been... 12 years. The healing process was long. I don't think we ever get over the the loss of a child. I would just constantly remind myself that I knew where she was at and that I would see her again and that gave me peace. The Bible talks about grief. There's a good grief and a bad grief and I had to learn to take the road to the good grief because one leads to life and another can lead to death. So I changed. I changed a lot. I feel that I felt as though God turned me inside out. And I, I think I mentioned to you that I felt like an orange rind when you slice an orange in half and you you eat all the pulp and then you squeeze as much of it out as you can. And then the orange is so good that you still want the little slivers that are left and you kind of turn it inside out to peel those out. I felt as though I was turned inside out, upside down, all the way around and I didn't know which way was up, but God changed my perspective about disabilities, about the care involved in those who have a disability or special needs. I started college a few months after I lost Mia and worked on a Bachelor of Fine Arts, which was a a big part of my healing process because there's healing in art. And I've always been artistic, but a lot of my art was focused on losing her and painting what I imagined she, like I did a a rose that was in the process of partly alive, partly dead. And it was beautiful in my eyes because I imagined that that's how she was. She was, she had special needs. This rose had special needs. It wasn't quite alive, wasn't quite dead, but wasn't perfect. So there was a lot of healing in that. Through the years, I felt as though people forget about those who have lost children. So I purposed it in my heart 
people that I knew that have lost kids since I've lost her. I, I try to about once a week contact the parent, see how they're doing. Do you need prayer? Do you need to just vent? Do you need to scream at me? Do you need to scream at God? I'm here. I want I want you to know that I have not forgotten what you have been through because I lived it. There were times where I felt, of course, discouraged, but felt as though God didn't answer my prayer. Why should I pray? And it's almost scary to say that as a prayer warrior, because I know in whom I have believed. I know the miracles he has done through prayer. I know I've seen, I've witnessed miraculous things that God has done because of prayers and how he has answered my my prayers, my needs, requests, intercession. And yet I started to feel doubtful. Why should I keep praying? And then I started to doubt, well, God told me to pray this scripture over my daughter and this didn't come to pass. Long story short, I feel that God allowed this to happen one so that I could have a different perspective as I've already said in life concerning special needs, but showed me a lot of what happens in the medical field, how people are taken care of, insurances, all of that. It has shown me how to talk to parents, now that I work with students who have uh, visual impairments, how to relate to the parents and how to relate to the staff at schools that work with, with these students and who deal with the parents. Um, have I doubted? Yeah. Honestly, I really have over the years, but I feel that God has done such a great work in me, and I've had people pray, still praying for me, interceding for me, for the healing process to be complete and for God to finish the work that he began in me, and I'm excited about what God is doing in my life. I honestly, I'm in this little hometown of mine, didn't think I would ever come back here, didn't think I'd ever be happy here. And I think now I feel that I'm the happiest that I've ever been. I'm very content in my walk with the Lord. Uh, godliness with contentment is great gain, and I feel that I have gained a lot being here. I have a prayer group. I have wonderful friends. We, we intercede for each other. We pray for the city. We pray for our churches. We pray for each other. And we all feel that God is being glorified and we, we exhort each other, we edify what God is doing, we glorify him, we thank him and we lift him up. And the hardest part of having lost her, because like I said, I lost her at 3.30 in the morning on a Saturday and church started at 10 on that Sunday. Uh, my husband and I agreed that we were going to go to church and we were going to go worship the Lord. So we slept a few hours and we got up, got dressed, went to church and church started. And one of my friends was a worship leader and we sat at the front of the church and I raised my hands and I worshiped God. I cried my eyes out, but I worshiped God and I sincerely said, I will worship God through this. I will trust God through this. I felt as though we had lost everything. I mean, we still had our son, Benjamin. We still had each other. We still had our house, but we felt emptied. And my husband and I, it, 
I remember he looked at me and he said, we've lost everything. We feel like we have nothing left to give, nothing. And that, I mean, his words were identical to what I was feeling. We felt completely emptied out, completely. And God started restoring and building us up, back up the way he needed us to be. And our marriage didn't survive the stress of all of that. I mean, there was a lot of other things, uh, infidelity, a year after I lost her and my mom passed away a few years after I lost my daughter. My best friend's husband died a year after I lost my daughter. So my best friend that was helping me stand and walk with the Lord and who was interceding for me also had a tremendous loss. So there's been a lot of deaths within a span of three to four years. So it, it, it was difficult. It was very difficult, but I can sit here today and look back and say, God was with me. God held me. God carried me. He was everything. Even when we feel that he's not there, he is there going through it with you. He is the light in the darkness. So if someone was listening right now and they're like, you know what, that's great for you. You're obviously still have battles, but you just have this faith. I don't have this faith. How how do I keep going when I'm in this black hole and I can't see which way is up and which way is down? And what, what would you say to them? Do not give up hope. You can live with hope. There was a word that was spoken to in church and it, it was meant for me at one time. I had prayed for her for such a long time. And the pastor said, there's someone out there. And it was me. I knew he didn't know he was talking to me, but he was talking to me, said, you have prayed and prayed and prayed for a long time and asked God to do this thing for you. And God has not done it yet. So you you have gotten very discouraged and you have given up. But God wants you to know that he has heard your prayer and your answer is on the way. Your answer is on the way. Do not give up. There may be many battles in the process. But the battle is the greatest right before you touch your victory, right before you gain that victory and get the answer to your prayer. Do not give up. Trust in Jesus. He will give you the victory. God spoke something similar to me in my in my darkest time. I really believe that like the pastor spoke to you. I think you're speaking that to someone who's going to be listening to this. So thank you. Um, thank you for sharing your story. This is exactly what I wanted. I can't believe how fast an hour can go when you're just hearing what God has done. And it's, it's by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony that we overcome. And I I believe your testimony is going to help a lot of people. But before we go, is there anything that I didn't ask about or that you would like to share that we didn't get to? I hope that he gets all the glory and that people are touched by the difficulties I went through, but not so much the difficulties because we don't glorify the darkness. We glorify Jesus and the light that comes out of the darkness. So I hope that people get the blessing out of it that it's meant meant to be there. 
You guys, I don't even have anything to add to that. Irma said it all. I just hope that you are encouraged by her testimony that God cares about the biggest things in our lives, but he also cares about the smallest things as well. There is no tear you've cried, hurt you've had that he does not know about, that he isn't saving in a perfect way to redeem when he sets all things straight. So I pray that you are encouraged. And if you were, Please subscribe wherever you are listening to this podcast and leave us a review that really helps other people find this podcast and be encouraged as well. So we want to start creating this community where we can all fight for our freedom together. Have a great week, you guys. I will see you next Monday.